This is Mission.org. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Marketing Trends and the Leeds Art Week. Hello, and welcome to Marketing Trends. This is producer Ben Wilson. This episode of Marketing Trends is a CMO roundtable that Ian and Lauren conducted with Chandar Patabiram, who is the CMO of Coupa, a cloud platform for business spend, and Jennifer Johnson, CMO of Tenable, a cyber exposure company. This is a really great episode about how to get started and find success as a CMO. If you know someone who has just stepped into the CMO role or is struggling to find their footing as a CMO, you might want to send them a link to this episode. In this roundtable, Jennifer and Chandar also discuss category creation, tribe building, dealing with failure, and much more. As usual, here are some of our top takeaways from this episode of Marketing Trends. And going back to the first 90 days, you know, if you deconstruct the role CMO, there's the C, the M, and the O. And a lot of people who have actually gotten there for the first time, the M has been really good. They've gotten to the fact that they're being a CMO is because they've done really well in M, like some aspect of marketing. Uh, using a musical instrument analogy, they could have played the violin well, they could have played the guitar well, they could have played, you know, whatever the instrument is. They've gotten to be very good at it. But it's the C is the orchestrator job, right? It's not great at a musical instrument. How am I getting orchestrating and building this engine across the board and getting that? And that's the first thing I would look at the first 90 days. Focus on the C part of the job, the chief, right? When a company tries to build a new category, they're actually trying to talk to someone they're likely not talking to today, sure. right? And so... One of the, the most common mistakes is what I call over-rotating. Everybody, like, this category is the shiny new thing. It's this big message. It's usually going to, like, a C-level executive. And the whole company rallies, if you're lucky, the whole company will rally around this new category. And what happens is you realize a couple quarters, like, whoa, hold on a second. The people who are actually buying our stuff today and using our stuff today aren't those people that we're trying to talk to tomorrow. Sure. Mm-hmm. And so then all of a sudden you say, whoa, whoa we got to go back <laughs> and bring them along. And then usually what happens is you go a little bit too far back in the other direction and you lose some of your vision. And then at some point it kind of hopefully meets in the middle. You know, timing is everything in life. And she said that, you know, the early bird gets the worm, but the second mouse gets the cheese. Uh, And if you really think about it, if you timed yourself really well, you end up monetizing the market and just not seeding it, right? So I always remember that timing is so important. It is so important. It's about really understanding the problem that you're solving, right? It's not about being a candle maker. It's because they need light. Why can't they get light in any other way? And why is a candle... Not just the best, but why is it the only way that they're going to get their problem point. solved? Great. And and I think as any marketer, we need to focus always on understanding that problem really deeply. Because if you frame if you frame the story around the problem and you frame it properly, you will be the only answer to it. I think one of the challenges that when you get into a CMO role or even you know head of marketing in a function is that you're trying to get off the right way and impress in the first mm-hmm. ninety days. All of us, human nature, right? And that can be viewed as, I'm going to do a lot of things. I'm going to take responsibility for a bunch of initiatives and go drive it. And sometimes good is the evil of great. And if you're trying to do many things good, uh, it's not as good as three things great. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you would much rather scope down and say, what can I have real, measurable, incremental impact in the organization? So with that preview, here is our roundtable discussion with Chandar and Jennifer. Marketing Trends is brought to you by Salesforce Pardot. B2B marketing automation on the world's number one CRM. Are you ready to take your B2B marketing to new heights? 
With Pardot, marketers can find and nurture leads, close more deals, and maximize ROI. Learn more by visiting pardot.com podcast, or click on the link in our show notes. Welcome to the Marketing Trends CMO Roundtable. I'm Ian Faison, Chief Content Officer here at Mission.org. To my left, instant, well, we have three guests with me today, but to my left, Lauren Vaccarello, how's it going? It's going amazing. I love the CMO Roundtable. This should be a lot of fun. Hi, this is going to be great. Um, JJ, how's it going? It, hi, it's going well. And so everyone, I'm JJ, Jennifer Johnson. Some people get confused because they know me as Jennifer Johnson. And then some people know me as JJ, but don't realize that my name is actually Jennifer Johnson. So just just in case anyone is confused, it is me. <laughs> I um, I often get LV. So most people refer to me as LV. But on this, I'm Lauren. Yeah, that's right. I, I call you Lauren. I call you by your your stage name here. I, I appreciate that. Your professionalness. Yeah, I get uh, I get LV and I don't know where it came from. I've never told anyone to call me LV. <laughs> probably my initials. I've never told anyone to call me that. But everyone naturally finds that. It, same with JJ. And it's so funny because as marketers, right, we are we are stewards of brands. And I feel like I have this brand identity crisis personally all the time <laughs> with my name. So we're just going to go with JJ. Well, like how about that? Well, Chandar has, he is the he is the share of our group. He's just, it, that's all it is. It's just Chandar. That's right. That's right. So people can't, speaking of brand identity, people can't say my last name. It's Patabiram. So just like Bono and just like Cher, they just go one name, Chandar. That's it. I just like it. One name, Chandar. I'm here. Great to be here. All right, so we are going to talk about a bunch of stuff. It's going to be a meandering road, as it always is. But we wanted to start out with this idea of the first 90 days of CMO. We've all done this. It's something that some folks have really good playbooks. In our episodes with uh, with both Chandar and, and Jennifer, you had a really interesting, I think, look at how to build from the very beginning a culture of your marketing team and within the other executives uh, in the C-suite of how to position marketing as a really important function, obviously. Um, and so we wanted to, to kind of talk through through that. So let's start off with Jennifer. What was it like when you were going into uh, the role as a CMO attainable? What were you thinking before you or like maybe once you accepted the position to like, what am I going to do the first 90 days? Yeah, great question. So, I mean, the first thing, obviously, is as you're going through the interview process, you should be interviewing the company just as they're interviewing you. So you you make sure that it's the right fit based on your skill set. And every every marketing role is, is a little bit different. Some are building roles, some are transformation roles, some are, you know, optimization roles. So understanding what it is you're actually going into is very important. Also understanding why it is that they want you, right? You're interviewing them, but they're also interviewing you. And there's a, some skill set that you have that they believe is the right fit for this next phase of the company. Uh, so for me, I am I am a natural builder by nature. I was going into not a, a building from the ground up blank sheet of paper. I was going into a, a very established marketing organization that needed uh, needed transformation. So it was a building role, but it was a tear down and, and rebuild role. I was also going in because we were a we were a leader. We are a leader in a what we thought at the time was a potentially commoditized category, which it turns out that that was not the case. But that was our hypothesis at the time. And we believed that we needed to supersize our, our category and go into a bigger market to, to justify a bigger TAM and, and, and which we are also doing. So my category design skills were also very relevant for what the company needed. So I kind of already had, as every good CMO should, 
you already have a notion of what you're going to be doing in that first 90 days, which is going to help shape your playbook for me. And, and I think that regardless of what you're going into, the first 90 days are all about, I think the people is probably the most important thing, no matter what kind of role you're going into. Uh, for me, it was extremely important because I knew I was going into a transformation role. But regardless, going in, moving fast, but not moving too fast, I think is the key. Going in, meeting the team. You know, I know everyone's working at different scale organizations. So sometimes it, it is scalable to, to go in and, and meet everyone. Sometimes it's not. But take the time, whatever that means for you and your organization to really understand how things work. And you might have an idea of how things need to change, but understanding how things work, who's in the right roles. Sometimes you have the right people in the wrong roles. And so it's about moving them into something that's better suited for their skill set. Sometimes it's the right people, you know, that are in the right roles and that's great. And you need to figure out how to double down on them and give them the resources they need. And sometimes, you know, it might've been the right person for the last phase, but it's no longer the right person for the next phase. And I think making those decisions fast, but not too fast is the key. And I and I think everyone say, you will always look back and say, I wish I would have moved faster. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's the, it's the, it's the age old thing you're, is the, that balance of not going too fast. But at the end of the day, everyone always says, I wish I would have made the decisions faster. So trust your gut, but it really, the people are the most important thing any CMO can do in the first 90 days. Yeah, that's great, Jennifer. That's JJ, as uh, as you know, as you said. I think it's spot on. You know, for me, for example, going back to the the you know the last two roles that I've had is CMO of public companies. Uh, you know, speedboats mm-hmm. gone public, but are need that at storytelling at scale, and that's kind of the playbook that I'm trying to bring to the organization. And going back to the first ninety days, you know, if you deconstruct the role CMO, there's the C, the M, and the O. And a lot of people who have actually gotten there for the first time, the M has been really good. They've gotten to the fact that they're being a CMO is because they've done really well in M, like some aspect of marketing. Uh, using a musical instrument analogy, they could have played the violin well, they could have played the guitar well, they could have played you know, whatever the instrument is. They've gotten to be very good at it. But it's the C is the orchestrator job, mm-hmm. right? It's not great at a musical instrument. How am I getting orchestrating and building this engine across the board and getting that? And that's the first thing I would look at the first 90 days, focus on the C part of the job, the chief, right? And to your point, it starts with people. And to me, I always use a simple framework of if you're starting with people, look at performance and potential. If you do a two by two of my organization, where are they in their performance and where are they in their potential in every employee, right? And if you're getting top right, awesome. Those are the people you double down on. If you're doing top left, it means your potential is great, your performance is low. You really want to understand why, right? And 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 why is that? Is it because of bad management? Is it because of they're not being had mentorship and stuff like that? Bottom left is a problem. You have to look at that and say, okay, do we, do we you know, First nine days is the right time to make those decisions for employees. So that's the framework I use in terms of people and potential. And to your point, you talked about trusting your gut. You know, the informed intuition is a word I use to move fast is, you know, get the right amount of information to make, make your decision by the gut and talk about people. Coming out of the 90 days is, is what I look at the three things is one is, A, do I have a clear understanding of the people, what I need and what I have, what I need and what are the deltas? B, what are the plays we're going to run for the rest of the year, the three plays? Because a lot of times you have a lot of, you know, entropy and disorder going on in the organization, the reason why you're here to bring scale. So understand that. And three, I would say, is the performance. How are we going to measure ourselves? And, and, and a year from now, when you connect the dots looking backwards, we said we did really well or not. And make sure that your CEO is aligned with that. That's yeah. what I would say. You know, I think you said something really interesting about trusting your gut. And I think as executives, which we should, data, 
data rules, right? We should always be looking to make data-driven decisions. Yep. But when I think when it comes to people, there is a moment where you act, you have to trust your gut. Yes. And that's where I see executives. That's what that's what takes too long because they're. I think a lot of times people are waiting to get all of the data. You will never have perfect data. And your gut is what's telling you what the right answer is. Totally, and I love this Reed Hastings. I stole it from him, uh, the CEO of, of Netflix, informed intuition. I use that word, trust your gut, yeah. have the least amount of data to make that decision to go forward. It is, it's the, the trust but verify, but I think it's the thing so many, not just CMOs, but leaders will say, I know the answer here, but this is a hard decision. And if it has, especially if it has to do with people, I don't want to... What do I have a bias on this? What are all the reasons I could be wrong? And we wait and we wait and we wait. And to your point is, I wish I would have done this sooner because I knew in the beginning something felt off. Yes. 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 And totally. And you're going back to the 1988 Old Spice commercial, right? You don't make, <laughs> you don't get a second chance to make a first impression. Yes. So there's a whole concept of, you know, Malcolm Gladwell is speaking in our event, the blink reaction. Mm-hmm. So when you meet people for the first time, I always kind of write down what my blink reaction is. And I go back three months later and says, was I right or was I wrong? It's, in, it's incredible that, you know, more times than not, you're right than wrong in terms of your instinctive blink reactions to those. Right? It is. Totally and the, the way the brain works, we process 11 million different stimuli at any time, but you can only consciously process about 400 things at once, which means you have 400? 400 wow. things I, 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 to process. I was saying four. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's the, <laughs> well, this is what the room is and there's people here. So you have all of these stimuli, but you have to realize that what is that, 99% of information you are not processing consciously. So that's that. That's something weird that something is off here and something is. It's because of all the different bits of information you're bringing in. Something is off. See what that is and verify it. But to your point, that trust that instinct. And when you are in a leadership position, that instinct and the thing we all take for granted is this isn't a, a snap decision. This instinct is from 15, 20, 30 years of experience, that's why something is off because I've seen this before. Yeah, it's funny. I don't know about Jennifer and Lauren for you guys is the other aspect of this is this is that you can make the hard decisions in the first 90 days mm-hmm. with a lot more, you know, you got leverage and and, and you got, uh, what is the right word I was looking for? You know, they're expecting you to make these decisions. So yes. once you get it, move in the first 90 yes, days, right? right? And right. so just not forget that because making that decisions nine months later, it's going to be a lot harder than making it in the first Completely. Well, And also when you have to go to board meetings and they're looking for you, yes. what, what is your assessment? What, are, what moves are you going to make? Yes. What changes are you going to make? Yes. Mm-hmm. Not that you should ever make decisions based on a board meeting, but the, like- It is waiting, a forcing function. It is yeah. a forcing function. And hey, that's that's a, it's a good thing. It's yes. a good forcing function. And at the end of the day, you are the one that is accountable. No matter how bad you feel about something, you are the one that is on the line. You have to go to board meetings. You have to report up to the CEO. And the, well, I felt bad about this is not good enough anymore. Right. It, it's, yeah. I have to move forward and do it from a place of kindness. But our job is to do the right thing for the business still do the right thing for people, but also do the right thing for business. Yeah, the kindness is an interesting point. I know you guys, the, you know, what, you know, your perspectives would be interesting is that because when I look at it from the shoes of the other person, mm-hmm. the employee, when you're coming in, you know, their initial instinctive reaction is obviously, you know, there's, okay, do we have trust? And, you know, they're, they're apprehensive, what's going to happen? But approaching this, hey, listen, I'm coming in. I want to authentically evaluate the organization. Yes. I'm going to have honest, transparent conversations with you. But at the end of this time, I'm going to really tell you where we, whether you're in or you're out and how we're going to go forward with it. And having that transparency is very, very important. Well, transparency is key, yes. right? Because if you're going in, especially if you're going in and replacing 
a previous CMO, especially if there was a CMO that was loved by their team, exactly. mm-hmm. right? You have to understand and, and expect that you're going to go in and right. It's, there's going to be people who are going to embrace you because they were probably ready for change. And there are going to be people on the other side who resist you because yep. they loved the old CMO. And there's probably going to be people in the middle and it's understanding where those people are on the spectrum. You have to understand that as well as assessing, right? But totally. I think if you lay out lay it out up front and you say, this is my process, this is my rough timeline, and there's no question about it. And then people aren't walking around on eggshells, hopefully. Completely. Totally. And you, Amen. And you had said something earlier, Shandar, that I think is really, really important of when you come in and you're doing this two by two of performance, performance and, and potential, the people whose performance aren't great. One of the things that even when I was at Box and I went in and I saw teams that weren't doing well and I walk into a job and say, you know what? No one wakes up every day and goes to work and says, let me be crappy at my job. <laughs> true, true. So I went in and said, the, some teams aren't doing well. Why? Why aren't they doing well? I'm not going to walk in and assume it's not doing well because you were not smart and you were terrible at what you do. Is there some sort of root cause? Is there an underlying cause? And if it's because I had a a demand gen team once, which I still to this day, I remember sitting and having a conversation with them and we're trying to do planning for next quarter and I've got to go report up and figure out how much budget do I need? What targets? What are we coming in? So I get the demand gen team in super matter of fact and said, okay, so next quarter, how much money do you need? What what are your targets? Are you going to hit them? What's the gap? And then how much money do you need to fill the gap? Totally. Super yeah. understandable, very matter of fact conversation that I've had all throughout my career. And I kid you not, they looked at me like I had two heads. <laughs> I went, well, what do you mean? I went, so what are you, what are you going to do? What's your target? Is there a gap? How much do you need to solve this? And they started talking to me about leads and MQLs. They went, no, 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 no. I don't really care. What's your pipeline target? How much are you going to drive? What's our gap and how much do you need to fix it? And they kept talking to me and going around in circles about leads. And I'm there going, I don't, and I'm getting super frustrated. I went, why can't you answer my question? Like, well, no one ever gave us our targets and no one ever told us what our individual targets as segment leads for demand gen are. And no one ever gave us any reporting to show what leads we were driving, how that's converting into pipeline breakdown by segment. So I can't, I don't know how to answer your question. I don't know what my target is and I don't have any data to tell you where I am. And I went, oh, I think we need to end this meeting. (laughs) (laughs) And ended the meeting and our uh, finance business partner was there. And I remember looking at her going, I'm so, I feel so bad. I'm so frustrated right now. And I'm not mad at them. I'm mad at everyone who came before me because how doesn't the demand gen team know what their targets are? Right. Okay. Yeah. The pro- the real problem, the reason they've never hit their target is they have no idea what it is. Right. How can I expect them to hit a target if they have no idea what it is? You know, it, it's interesting that you say that. Um, yesterday we had Vidya, the, the CMO of MuleSoft, and she was talking about Mark Benioff's V2 mom mm-hmm. yeah, and yeah. just like how well it structures the whole organization because everything is nested within their, uh, you know, from the CEO all the way down. And it's like, it's one of those things that is so common sense when you look at it. It's like, oh, my goals are directly, you know, nested under, you know, my boss's goals. I mean, I think people often just kind of like lose sight of that. Like you said, do you think that there's a moment when you have that type of intuition or you have that type of moment? that you know something needs to change and you know and you need to talk to the CEO or or the board or whoever it is 
how do you position that? Like, what was what's your mindset going into that prep to say, like, are you talking to other CMOs? Are you talking to people on the team? Are you looking at bringing a certain amount of data? Like, what are those things that you go and say, like, hey, I'm trying to nest under your vision here. I see this as a huge problem. This is how I think I'm going to solve it. Here's the prep I've done. It might not seem like it's a lot, but it's just a hunch that I have and I need to execute. Like, what's the mindset there? Yeah. And I think I think it is who you are talking to. It, it will shape how you frame it. Right. So, you know, in, in my case at Tenable, um, we are public now. And when I came in, we were not public yet, but we we knew it, we might be preparing to go public. So one of my objectives was to get our marketing spend down to a, a level that was was acceptable to go public. Let's just say that. So so when I was t- so there are just some logical constraints you may have. And when I'm talking to my CFO, right, because because any org change is you want to actually get the you want to get the collective agreement and support of your executive team, including but not limited to the CEO. So when I'm talking to the CFO, it's all about cost and efficiency and how I'm managing headcount and programs and what percentage of the budget. So I try to make it very much a numbers cost percentage of revenue based discussion. In addition to talking about how we're actually get what the changes I'm making are going to support the strategy. Right. And that really I think one of the beauties of category design is it kind of gives you a well, it does. It gives you a framework for many things. It gives you a company strategy framework. It gives you a product strategy framework, but it also gives you a marketing strategy framework because then I could look at it to say, okay, if we're going to go build this category, these are the types of functions that we need in this organization to go drive this bigger agenda. Some are obviously need all the traditional blocking and tackling of marketing functions, but there might be some different things you need depending on on what you're trying to do. And so having that category as the umbrella strategy, and then you can layer in your marketing strategy to that. And then it's very logical to say, well, here are the here are the roles I need. And then some of that too is just industry benchmarks, right? Is there's just what is in range, you know, for a company of your size, given what you're trying to do, right? Like we didn't need a creative team of 12 people in-house given the size that we were. So that was one area that it was very, I mean, some of these things are just, they're, they're benchmarks, but it's also just knowing experience, right? Mm-hmm. Knowing as a CMO, I don't need a team that big to do that, right? Or there's certain things that we might be able to outsource versus insource. So I think those are all conversations that are relevant to have. It's like, it's like how you make a wedding cheaper. You cut the guest list, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it's, it's always, it's, always the best way. It's like, yeah. It's a good start. Now, I'll just augment what JJ said. I think you're spot on. Now, you know, coming to a company at scale, when they want to bring this marketing at scale, there's obviously a lot of things that the company has been doing right mm-hmm. uh, for them to get to that. So the danger there is coming in and saying, I'm going to throw everything with the, bat- in the baby with the bathwater there using, you know, the, the analogy there, uh, rather than trying to figure out what actually is working and what is not. And, and really spend the time to really understand that because the worst thing you can do is come and make Take a playbook that worked in company A and blindly come and try and apply that playbook into company B in the first 90 days. Yep. For example, I'll give you a practical example, right? Marketo, when I was CMO, Marketo's whole brand building strategy was based on education and thought leadership, right? And how do you use thought leadership as the primary way to build awareness mm-hmm. and acquisition, mainly awareness to drive acquisition. Now, I can't take that playbook into eight out of other 10 companies because they may not be in the, they're not marketing to marketers, they're different buyers, mm-hmm. and they haven't established that brand for driving thought leadership. The, the biggest mistake I can make is I'm going to drive this playbook and get the right people in this organization to drive the same playbook. That's a mistake. But rather, really understand what is the dynamics of this marketplace of this particular category and what works there in the first line is very, very important for us to do that. One. Two, 
the CEO already has a point of view on what works and what doesn't when he mm-hmm. or she is bringing you. The first step is to listen, two ears, one mouth, to understand what he or she is <laughs> thinking about and then start doing the things on what you have and then align with him or her in terms of what we want to do. The way I think it works effectively in the first 90 days, if I have to take one piece of it, give one piece of advice in terms of designing an organization when you're coming in, is align it for revenue success and sales success. Yes. Like a lot of marketing organizations are designed for kind of inside the engine room of marketing and how do we succeed. But truly at scale, we have to say that how do we designing a marketing organization for sales success? For example, you know, when, when I got there, Cooper's like, we said, okay, we, we have four different sales leaders, one for the US North America segment, one for the US mid market segment, one for the EMEA segment, and let's say one for the rest of the world. Are we designing our demand gen and, and segment marketing organizations to align to that leader so that your success and their success are correlated together? Mm-hmm. So organization design from that perspective is aligned to what I call revenue marketing. There's no such thing as product marketing or corporate marketing. Of course, they have functions, but it's all revenue marketing. Mm-hmm. And so driving to that sales success when you go have this conversation with the CEO will be very beneficial to say, this is what I want to do and this is why I want to bring scale into my organization. That's totally true. I mean, that, that I, amen. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, at the end of the day, right? Like it's, you know, we're we're all there, even though, you know, I came in to, to build a category. But why are we building a category? It's because we want to become the next billion dollar company, yeah, right? right? We, we want to right. grow the business. business. We that's want to right. grow the business. We want to grow faster. We want to sell higher in the organization. We want to sell bigger deals, right? So it all comes back to revenue. Yeah. So I say it all comes down to like our mantra in marketing there is why do any marketing is to win more, win bigger, win faster. Yep. Right. Those are the three things. Like anything we do, are we winning more? Are we winning faster? Winning more obviously is win rate. Winning faster is obviously your your sales cycle, and winning bigger is your ASP. Every marketing campaign probably doesn't impact all three, mm-hmm. but it, but they ought to be impacting at least one of those three. Yeah. Otherwise, we do yeah. it, right? And as we think about things like category design and category creation, that is your that's your long term. That is the reason we're doing this. And to the point that you made earlier, JJ is because we don't think the TAM is big enough in the current category, and we think there's so much more room. And our our responsibility as marketing leaders is I need to get money today. I need to drive revenue today. And I also need to not be as, how do I say this in a nice way? Uh, not be as tactical as sales who's just thinking about today's dollar. Our responsibility as marketing leader is like, yep, today's dollar and also yep. tomorrow's dollar That's and right. next year's dollar. That's, That's right. right. That's I'm right. so glad yep. you just said that, right? And so we have to be, we have to, of course, we are partners to sales yeah. and they're an extremely important stakeholder, but we are partners, right? That, that is the key yeah. because salespeople, as they should think in 90 day increments, I always yep. say this, our job is to look a year. So the analogy out. I use yep. is sales plays golf, marketing plays chess. Mm-hmm. When you're playing yeah. golf, you're the, <laughs> if you're on the 14th hole, you're not worried about hole 18. If you're in the bunker on hole 14, you're only worried about the same hole. Whereas marketing, you got to be playing the move after That's the move. That's brilliant. Right? So sales guys don't like it, but uh, anyway, I'll he run with it. the best analogy. Yeah, that's so great. Yeah. Yeah. I want to go back to category creation. So I personally, you know, I had some interesting experiences in category creation. So if I may, I'm going to ask you a question on that. You know, I one of the sexiest marketing jobs I had was at Badgeville. I was head of marketing there and we were trying to create a category for gamification, uh, enterprise gamification. It was in the 2012, 2013 timeframe. What we faced was, you know, it's a little bit of the challenge where the category, the interest and the awareness was, the interest was hot. But the propensity to buy now wasn't there. There was a why now problem. It was there was not compelling enough. Mm-hmm. So in that stage of building a category, I was curious, like, you know, there's a different kind of marketing skill set required than when you're driving a transactional engine when you're inside. 
ride the tornado using Jeffrey Moore analogy. Yeah. I'm curious to get your perspective on that. It's a great question because usually when, when a company tries to build a new category, they're actually trying to talk to someone they're likely not talking to today. Sure. Right. And so one of the, the most common mistakes is what I call over-rotating. Everybody, like this category is the shiny new thing. It's this big message. It's usually going to like a C-level executive. And the whole company rallies, if you're lucky, the whole company will rally around this new category. And what happens is you realize a couple quarters, like, whoa, hold on a second. The people who are actually buying our stuff today and using our stuff today aren't those people that we're trying to talk to tomorrow. Sure. Mm-hmm. And so then all of a sudden you say, whoa, whoa we got to go back <laughs> and bring them along. And then usually what happens is you go a little bit too far back in the other direction and you lose some of your vision. And then at some point it kind of hopefully meets in the middle. So what I always say is think of it like a pyramid, right? And if you took a pyramid and you cut it into three three um, layers horizontally, you have your CXO, and I'm thinking more enterprise B2B yeah, software, yeah, yeah. right? But you have your CXO, what, whoever that is that you sell to at the top. Then the middle is like, uh, let's just say functional management, people who might be running a team. And then the bottom layer are the users, right? And if you think about it, that pyramid, right? It's, it's also reflective of how many people are probably in that segment. Sure. And when you're building a category, your ultimate point of view is probably at the top piece of that that pyramid, but you still have to have a message that brings the middle pyramid and the, and the bottom layer of the pyramid along with it. So everyone has to feel like they're part of the bigger story and you have to have a part of your point of view and your and your story that that hits them. And then you you line up your programs that way because certain programs, you know, for us, we're we're still working to get to that CISO level mindshare, right? We started as a vulnerability management company, right? And that's a different person who uses our product today than ultimately the people who we believe will be selling to and, and having using our products tomorrow. So that's a different motion, right? It's a lot of air cover. It's right. a lot of PR. That's it's right. a lot of thought leadership. It's a lot evangelistic of reference and evangelism. evangelism. Right. Very different than, you know, we're doing a webinar series. We're sure. doing content. The people who are evaluating our product today, but everything has to kind of tie together to yeah. that umbrella. That's, that's a great umbrella framework to have. I mean, the challenge that, you know, the challenge can happen in category creation is timing is everything, right? Mm-hmm. You end up being Napster if you're not not being Apple. So you end yeah. up educating the market and not monetizing it, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. I was with the CMO of this company called USAA she gave me a line that I would never forget in my life. I was, you know, trying to pitch gamification to USAA and stuff. And she said, you know, timing is everything in life. And she said that, you know, the early bird gets the worm, but the second mouse gets the cheese. Uh, (laughs) If you want to think about it, if you're timed yourself really well, you end up monetizing the market and just not seeding it, right? So I always remember that timing is so important. It is so important. You know, when we talked in our episode with you, JJ, one of the things that you said that was so interesting that you're kind of alluding to there was this idea that like, it's almost like parallel tracks of marketing where it's like you're marketing to your current customers and then you're also marketing to this like future customer Mm -hmm. that doesn't, is kind of loosely defined. And they're, like you said, they're the CXO position. But one of the things we talked about in the episode was that, you know, you're on the right you know, track when there's not a position for this job yet, but people start making this position, yeah. you know, yeah. like one of those, like the chief data officer or the chief, you know, digital officer, some of these C-level positions that are literally being created around certain things, you know, back in the day, there wasn't a CISO, right? Stuff yeah. like that. Was there something particular that like you had a best practice on like doing those campaigns in parallel and not having your team have their faces melt off? Cause they're like, what the hell? We have two different 
sets of positioning. Like we have two different mm-hmm. messages. Like yeah. what are we doing? Well, the first thing is I go back to that pyramid because that really frames your message house is everything. And the category is much bigger than than messaging. Like let's, that's the first thing. But but your story is important. And you build a point of view, which is usually this very big story. And it's usually some type of a business level message. And the CISO will care about one thing. In our case, they care about risk, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and then when you go one level down, they care about risk, but they care about it in a different way. A lot of, for them, it's about how do I prioritize? How do I, there's way too many things to do. I have very few resources to do them. How do I automate, prioritize? Like it's, a, it's the same message, but at the top, it's about how do I communicate and translate cyber risk to the board? One level down, it's how do I prioritize and focus my teams based on where that risk is. And down at the very bottom, it's it's kind of a variation of that message, but it's the users, right? They don't want to have all these fire drills. They want to be able to be able to have their nights and weekends free. So you have to have a message that everybody can relate to, but that they all flow together. And like, that's the first piece of it. And then the second piece is then making sure you have programs that align to each one of those. And that like, if, if I want to make it really, really simplified, our PR team drives a lot of that top level pyramid messaging because it's editorial and it's PR and it's high level content. Our demand gen field marketing team kind of takes that that mid-level box and we have a community team. So in our case, we started as, a, as an open source scanner called Nessus. Now, this is actually kind of an interesting thing with our story is we have more brand equity. Our company is tenable, but we actually have more brand equity in this product called Nessus. Every CISO knows Nessus because they were a practitioner at one point that used it. Every single Ooh, security. So, so it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a huge advantage, right? But it's interesting about how you, how you bring those together. CSOs may not know Tenable yet. They may think of us as that scanner. So we have to show them how we're not just that scanner, but they know it. And as soon as you can make that connection and say, you know Nessus, you love Nessus, you use Nessus. That's how you learn security. Guess what? We're the company behind Nessus. You automatically have like, like and brought your, yeah, yep. You brought yourself to the front of the line. Yeah, that's a great point on, on that playbook makes a lot of sense for me on that perspective, right? I mean, the other piece to think about is category creation, going back to your question in terms of the people, right? Like, you know, how do you highlight two sets of personalities? You know, one interesting way to look at it is that category creation can be enabled by tribe creation. You know, if you think about it, at Marketo as an example when I was there is that we thought we were selling the marketing automation category, but what they were buying was marketing nation. So we were selling marketing automation, what they were buying was the marketing nation, which was being part of this tribe, right? And so a lot of times it's like, what can you find in these discrete buyer personas and elevate their presence. If you really think about a lot of companies, in a lot of companies, the revenue side of the house is probably sitting in first class drinking champagne. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. other people like IT and other functions, sitting, other functions are sitting in the back of the plane drinking warm Bud Light for six bucks. Right. <laughs> they, they're in basic economy, <laughs> economy, right? So then you can figure out, okay, if you're selling a product to not to the, you know, the sexy sales buyer or something, can you elevate their brand presence within their organization, mm-hmm. how strategic and transformative they are? And if your product is an enabler to them gaining that you know yeah. visibility and importance and strategic importance of the organizations that can be an enabler to create that tribe and go forward on completely. that completely and it's so much on the category right go ahead sorry go ahead okay and then so much on the just having sold to IT for more years in my career than I care to think about so much of it is the <laughs> how do you make the CI give the CIO a real seat at the table right. and it's not hey I need you to cut ten million dollars from your budget so what are you what are you going to do to save us money. And where so many IT leaders fall in that, but how do you give them an opportunity to reframe their position in the company, give them an opportunity to change how their role is really thought about and to be that strategic business partner the same way all of us say, in our first 90 days, we're going to figure out 
what are board level goals? What are CEO goals? How do I align with business growth and business goals so we all can be strategic in the company and have a seat at the table? The same way that we're all thinking about that, the CIO is fighting the same fight. The CISO is fighting the same fight. All of the back of house functions, basically every function that's not totally. sales or yeah. engineering no, totally. is like, no, no, I matter. No, I do. I think the one company that did it well, going back to the category through the tribe, right? And, you know, is just to that point is, and, and CIOs typically nowadays get that seat at the table. It is some of those network admins, for example, right? Or, you know, application performance managers and those kinds of guys are like buried in the organization. Like if you look at, you know, uh, New Relic. So one example I always say is that you now they build this category, this whole thing, application performance, whatever them and, and App Dynamics created up the exact name of the category, I, I forget, but it just became a multi-billion dollar category. But they created this whole thing around data nerds. And mm-hmm. we are that data nerd community and get that cult feeling among them. And that was kind of the, you know, catapulting the creation of that category. So this concept of a tribe creating a category is some other aspects of the playbook. You're totally right, because at a certain point it can't be the company pushing the message anymore. Totally. And you need and to get the poll, you actually have to build the community. So I have a great question for you because I'd love to know the case study of how the marketing nation Marketo came about. Was it like, can you talk a little bit about it? Like the inception of it? Was it a community that drove a big conference? Was it the user conference that drove the community? Like how did it work? It's a great question. And I'm going to give credit for two people. One, John Miller uh, and two, Sanjay Delakia, who is the CMO before me and my good friend and uh, a kind of a mentor, awesome, awesome guys. John also two-time guest on marketing. Great, great, great. John <laughs> owes me a check. Tell him next time he comes here. I keep telling about him every time I come here. <laughs> so Marketo was built on this concept of you know always be teaching, right? So if Alec Baldwin was a salesperson and Glenn Gary Gangos, he says always be closing. If he was a marketer, he said always be teaching. That's always at the beginning <laughs> of the podcast. Beginning right? of the podcast, right? So the idea was we have to earn the right to engage with a prospect, and the best way to earn the right to engage is to teach them something. So in other words, in every interaction with a prospect being a buyer and a seller, there's a value equation. There's a value being exchanged, right? And from a buyer's perspective, that value, the gift to get ratio better be less than one, right? Or from a seller's perspective, the gift to get ratio has to be greater than one. Meaning, am I giving more than I'm getting? And in Marketo's case, the value there was, I'm going to educate you on how to be a great digital marketer. And what I'm getting is for you to engage with my brand and brand awareness. So there was this whole concept of teaching through blogs and content early on at Marketo. And John, in fact, wrote the first line of blog at Marketo even before we had our first line of code. Right. Wow. So that was that was that DNA was built into the organization. Now that was all happening, and I give credit to Sanjay Delaki, who was a CMO around, you know, starting from 2013. And he was the person that put a form to that feeling putting a form to that feeling and says, I'm going to call this the marketing nation. And so we kind of got that feeling to it. And now you have a form to it and saying, okay, we're all the tribe and you know we can all associate with each other and learn, share and grow with each other. So that took off on its own and that's what caused it. So I give credit to these two guys for, for doing that. That's great. You know, so uh, as I mentioned, we had Vidya, the, the CMO of MuleSoft, and we were talking about building ecosystems and they do a really good job of building a developer ecosystem. One of the things we talked about in that episode and we talk a lot on this podcast is like, you know, marketing needs to do two things, like fight where you can win and then be remarkable, right? It's like yes. your stuff has to actually be remarkable. People need to talk about it. And when you build an ecosystem, like no one has your ecosystem, just you have it, right? I mean, like the owners are the people in the ecosystem, but you're the one facilitating that. And so when we were talking about MuleSoft building a developer ecosystem, one of the things that she said, which is really interesting, is she was like, there's three things that developers want. 
Number one, they don't want to be sold to. Number two, they want to talk to each other. And number three, they don't want to talk to you. And so she was like, we wanted to make a place where like all three of those things happen. And the thing hearing you all talk about this, that's also interesting. JJ, you were talking about this idea that the current CISOs used to use this product. Well, the developers of today are going to be CTOs of tomorrow, right? That's right. Yeah. And so when you are developing an ecosystem now, like this is the ultimate, you know, multi-games of chess at the same time for marketing, <laughs> um, is because you have to you have to build the ecosystem now and sow the seeds that are going to, you know, plant the leaders of tomorrow. It's yeah. like this conversation, this makes me think a lot about a conversation we had with Sarah Varney. Yeah. That we, uh, so Sarah Varney, who's the CMO at Twilio, she and I have known each other for sure. 10 years. And we were chatting about sort of relationships and the relationships everyone keeps as marketers and professionals. And we both went, I mean, we talk to each other and all of us get along because we all genuinely like each other and get along. But there is an element of all of this of enterprise sales of you don't know when you will ever need anybody or when you will interact the same way with enterprise sales. This is a long sales cycle. This may or may not ever play out. But, you know, five years from now, it may be oh, wait, who can I call about X? Oh, I need to go build a category. I'm going to go call JJ. This is perfect. And there's this element of just general networking and CMO relationships of enterprise sales. And it's the same thing with developers. This is the long game. This is our multi-year enterprise sales cycle. We'll get in. We'll get them excited when they are up and coming in their careers. And one out of every 10, one out of every 100 are going to turn into a CTO and a portion of that will be the CTO of the fastest growing company in the world. Don't you want them now when yeah, that's they're, right. they're excited and influenced yeah. the same way that you had with your product? That's right. We even take it a step further, even back to say when people are learning cybersecurity in college, now it's high school. We give them Nessus for free. So it's the, it's, the, it's the McDonald's strategy of catch them young. That's right. Strategy. That's right. People <laughs> learn people. We get so many people that say we actually learned cybersecurity because of Nessus. And they take that in with them. That's great. That's I, great. I was chatting with this completely amazing AI company, bunch of data scientists, love what they're doing, what they're building and doing a little advising work for them. And one of the things I had talked to them about of you were building this, you were building this product, and part of it is educating data scientists. We have to believe and we operate in a world where we say the need for data science is only going to grow exponentially. It is not a here's an AI company that has data scientists. It is every single company, almost every single company in the world is going to need data science. Right now, there aren't enough people to do this. So Data science is going to only increase as something that's being taught at school. Why don't you play the long game now? Sure. And this was yeah. a big piece of advice I had for them of mm -hmm. what you should be doing is going in and working on curriculum development, going in and giving these schools when they're teaching their curriculum, use your product to and use your sample data sets so that when they build, how do you go and work with whatever online coding academies and you become the gold standard when you learn data science? This is what you're taught off of. So in a year, in five years, in 10 years, every single data scientist in the back of their head, they're like, oh, I I know what the gold standard is for anything to do with AI. It is this product. Right. That's right. And it's the it is the ultimate long game. But you have to bet on this is a space that I believe is growing. This is a place, a space I believe education is important the same way 
Every company is going to need cybersecurity. This is not going away. The need is only increasing. That's right. And it's just like data science. There's more openings than there are people, qualified people to fill them. So it's our, I always say, it's not just our opportunity, it's our responsibility. It's a great way of saying it. It's a great way of saying it. Okay. So we're at a little over the halfway point and I have something fun for all of you. Since we're not going to do a lightning round because we've already done all of our lightning rounds with you, we're going to do a little thing that, I'll still call the, it'll be the lightning uh, quote guessing game. (laughs) So what we're going to do is I'm going to say a quote that was said by one of you three. (laughs) (laughs) So if it is witty and succinct, it was. (laughs) (laughs) And you, and it's going to be, you're going to be able to buzz in by, uh, you can, not banging the table. No, oh. don't bang the table. Actually, no. What what we'll do is you can just shout out as soon as you think as soon as you think of of who you think it is. You can just say their name, and then if it's incorrect, I'll keep reading. Uh, we will tally points. The winner will get a prize. And uh, and, and we'll triple two to Hawaii. Is that is that on? What's that? Triple two to Maui. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Ooh, yeah. On Southwest, Caro. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. Shout out to Ryan. Okay, sounds good. Sounds good. All right. right. These are going to be lightning round style, (laughs) just like lightning fast marketing automation with Pardot. You can go to pardot.com slash podcast to learn more about B2B marketing with the world's number one CRM. Lightning quote guess game questions. First one. Here we go. (laughs) It is easy to be taken for granted as a marketer when you do your... I think I said that. Yeah, you did say that. <laughs> you can guess your own. Huh? You can guess your own. You oh, can... yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay, fine. I, so like, I, I thought it was only guess the other two. I, I was like, you have to assume I remember half the things course. I said. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so it, was, it, it is easy to be taken for granted as a marketer. When you do your job well, it looks easy. Lauren Beckerell. Actually, maybe, yeah, no, don't guess your own. Uh, no, you Wait, can guess your own. It'll I, make it fun. I also It'll don't remember fun. a lot of the things that I've said. In. I, it's yeah. probably hey, for we, the best. I don't remember a lot of the things I've said. <laughs> we've done a lot of episodes. All right. <clears throat> Next one. Product marketers are well suited to become CMOs. Oh, that was me. It was you. <laughs> I was going to say it was you. But Shand- Shandar. I'm a little okay. biased because I was a product marketer. That does me not too. mean. Me too. You, see, there you go. So can I just say one thing to that? This does not mean that I believe only product marketers make good CMOs. Good CMOs, great CMOs come in all shapes and sizes and different backgrounds. However, if you look at the history and lineage of CMOs over time, they first started in, in a lot of times coming from more of like a brand comms background. Then with the rise of marketing automation, you can actually tie it to categories. With the rise of marketing automation and revenue marketing and demand gen became marketing operations, metrics became the most coveted kind of capability of a CMO. Now I believe we are entering into a new phase of CMO when the notion of storytelling and category design and positioning becomes so, differentiation becomes so critical. Those are core skills that a product marketer just learns inherently by what they do. And that's why I believe that product marketers make great CMOs. No, I agree. In fact, I wrote, in fact, there's a webinar I'm doing today on product marketing to CMOs uh, with with another person who runs a product marketing practice. But I can't agree with you more. I grew up in that area for many, many years. And you make the point of strategic strategic storytelling, as you say, right? I mean, 
that's the essence of all marketing, right? And if you can have that skill set as a CMO, the rest of it you can always glean. But having the ability to position to spin, it's it's a natural skill set to have. In fact, that's why I said the best marketing book you can read. Somebody asked me this. Sorry, Lauren, go ahead. Oh no, no. I said the best marketing book you can read. I said it's that positioning the battle for your mind. Al Rees and Jack Trout, nineteen eighty one. Yeah. Right. You know. So that's it. If you want to go be a good messaging guy, read that book. Right. And then as the as the DG person at this at this round table, I think we make excellent CMOS as well. Sure. But the <laughs> the the thing that I mean, I'll, I will tell you on the coming up from the demand gen performance side, mean streets of the, demand mean, gen. the mean streets of DG. I got to carry a bag my whole career. Yeah. Um, but the thing that we get dinged with all the time is, well, you're too tactical. You're just execution. You need product marketing to be strategic. And the <laughs> there are parts of my career, and I was a while ago catching up with a, a friend of mine who used to run product marketing for sales cloud at Salesforce 10 years ago. And we were, we were talking and it was, he's like, he was talking about how great it was being sort of on the product marketing side. And I went, if I could go back in time, if I could redo my entire career, I would probably want to be a pro- come up as a product marketer versus demand gen because demand gen gets kicked around all the time. He's like, I love this. I go. I talk about long-term development. I'm strategic. It's long-term positioning. No one knows how to measure if I'm good or not. You, like you were on the hamster wheel every single day. I was like, yep, every day of my career, (laughs) every day. What number have you hit today? What number are you hitting tomorrow? It's always good to have the measurement, right? The one thing I would say about product marketers, JJ, going back to your point, and and Lauren, you, you kind of talked about this. You want to be a product marketer, go back. But the challenge we have in the Valley is there's a lot of, capital P, small M's, meaning in product marketing. A lot of people talk about, more about, let me tell you how great my product is. Yeah, mm-hmm. And totally. talk about that as opposed to story marketers, right? Yeah. I like to say that, you know, people buy candles, not because they like candles, because they want light. And yes. you have to understand that it is the value and the story of what you're trying to say. And, and that's what, that is a skill set that a lot of product marketers can learn. Should totally be called, agree. And shouldn't it's the, be called candle makers. Should be called light bringers. Light there you go. Yeah, these are killing. Like yeah. light. We, these are not this, lightning. These are not lightning. And I was going to go on a whole tangent about why customer centricity is important, but I won't. For yeah, you. thank you. I appreciate that. All right, back to the quotes. Jeez, they're all killing me. All right. <clears throat> You have to have a beginner's mindset and try to understand the market, the culture, and the team environment. <laughs> and that's me. I don't even know when I said it, but it sounds like me. So. All right. People don't buy what they want. They buy what they want to be. <laughs> Shit, oh. that's really good. Yeah, that's me. I'll riff on that yeah. for a second. Is yeah. That whole, you know, Peloton is a great example of that. I was talking about this community, right? And, you know, how do you build a community? Because it's appealing to the essence of the feeling of being in a part of a tribe. So what I want is some gym, some, you know, bike. But what I want to be is part of a community of, that's why Peloton is awesome. Mm-hmm. It's a customer of ours and, and proud to have a customer like that. But really the fact is I want to be out of this community and be part of this overall feeling. And even I talk about marketing automation, even at Cooper, what we're trying to do is build that business spend management community. So that was the context where people don't buy what they want, they buy what they want to be. Mm. Right? I like that. So. And it, I'm going to go on my, just 20 second tangent <laughs> before Ian pulls my to know what people want to be, it goes back to, to be a good storyteller, to be a good product marketer, to be a good marketer, it's who is your customer? Yes. What do they care about? How do you know them really, really deeply? And then based on their needs, their desires, their hopes, their problems, that's what your product is there to solve. To your point, you're not selling candles, you are providing light. 
But why? And even even going even deeper of why are you providing light for these people, and what is the real benefit of what they can do because of that? And that's our job as marketers and storytellers is knowing our customers so so deeply. And I get asked a lot of questions of you know, which is fun as the the DG person of what do you think makes a good product marketer? And every time someone says that, I the first thing I will say is you need to be the conduit from the customer and know the customer better than any other person in any other part of the organization. Interesting. Yeah, Interesting. I mean, what people what people get wrong so much is just like you're not the hero. They're the hero. That's right. You're the lightsaber. That's exactly right. right. Like That's beautifully Luke's, said. They're Luke beautifully Skywalker. Said. They are Luke Skywalker. Um, you know, like somewhere along the way, someone gives him the lightsaber, but it's like you're just a part of their journey and they're going to get there and they have all the powers to get there anyways. You're just the elixir. That's right. And I think even, even one step further than that, it's about really understanding the problem that you're solving, yes. right? It's not about being a candle maker. It's because they need light. Why can't they get light in any other way? And why is a candle not just the best, but why is it the only way that they're going to get their problem point. solved? Great. And and I think as any marketer, we need to focus always on understanding that problem really deeply, because if you frame if you frame the story around the problem and you frame it properly, you will be the only answer to it. That's great. Beautifully said. And then you're not fighting over well, I need this feature and here's my list of features that, and do you, which box do you check? And you're like, this is the wrong question. And if we're having a discussion on features, in a lot of ways, I've probably done the that's wrong right. job. That's right. So that's right. So that's right. my one of my you know things I talk about internally, and I've been speaking a little bit about it externally too, is that we talk about fueling the funnel. You know, talk about the funnel, but I keep saying it's not fueling the funnel, it's the feeling in the funnel. It's not the feature, but it can bring that emotion and storytelling in the funnel process that they can connect with you. Because every time you make it a feature function discussion, then the person with the biggest features always wins. Exactly. Like it's a small company, you're trying to go against the folks that are the, the larger ones. You have the challenge because they're going to have more features. But if you bring that feeling into the funnel about what is your true differentiation, I understand your problem, I can go do this probability of success is higher. And that's, that's right. all we're trying to do, move the sales cycle forward, right? That's our job, Yeah, right? that's right. Right, so. Are we keeping tally here on who's winning here on this? <laughs> well, you, you're not, you all aren't playing by the rules. <laughs> we're so, guessing you know, ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, how about say the person's name out loud and then that's the person who uh, who you're, basically I'm winning. It's one to zero to zero to zero. <laughs> Actually, I think I'm losing because I can't get my quotes in. All right, let's get back into it. Brand awareness doesn't have to mean millions of impressions. Treasure. It was Lauren. Lauren. I was going to get Lauren. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, did I say that? <laughs> nice. All right. No, I just well, thought you were going by load balancing. Yeah. 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 Next one, that's <laughs> why I mix it up. All right. Can you finish the quote, though? Oh, yeah. Brand awareness doesn't have to mean millions of impressions. It's all about does the right person know about me? Good there job, you go. Lauren. Definitely. definitely Repeat that again. I want, I want to digest that. Repeat that again. Brand awareness doesn't have to mean millions of impressions. It's all about does the right person know Spot about on. It. Spot on. Spot on. I think contextual brand awareness is so important, right? So that's why, you know, we're, if we have brand dollars, we're trying to go after targeted CFOs rather than spray and pray on the Chicago airport and putting some banner ads on Totally. That. 100%. How many freaking like software company subway takeovers? Ah, I'm like, I'm like, and again, I'm not saying that's wrong. It could be totally right. But I'm like, man. One one software company does it, then everybody wants to do it, and then every every major airport is just filled with software company takeovers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting, right? It's it's awareness is the first mile to all marketing, right? So if you don't have awareness, we all know that it can get get up the stairway to heaven, as I call it, awareness acquisition advocacy. But still, 
you know, if you have hundred brand dollars, are you spending, you better off spending 90 of those brand dollars going after a very targeted persona in some way, shape or form that can consume you, which is trying to go be the broad spray and pray, which your employees like it that they're going down one-on-one and they can see the banner and stuff like that or going to the airport and see, mm-hmm. but necessarily do you going to get to your target persona? So that's always the challenge, right? right. Uh, but and it, and contextual it, brand awareness is the right answer. 100%, mm-hmm. And it's knowing why are you running this campaign? Why are you running this brand awareness campaign? And gosh, this had to be eight years ago. I was work. I was at Salesforce and I was working on Dreamforce for acquisition and it was during the recession. So things were much cheaper. And we ended up doing was really cost effective. And we said, we'll do a takeover to drive free registration for Dreamforce on the San Francisco Chronicle. or the, yeah, the, yeah. So we'll do this really inexpensive. We're going to do a wrap around the, the newspaper. So great. We want to get people to show up. And they said, well, as part of this, because it's the recession and who buys print during the recession, we'll let you do a subway takeover. And we'll do a subway takeover. We'll have people. We'll have a balloon arch. We'll have people handing out these newspapers. It'll be great. And the smart thing to do if you really want to drive people to go to the conference because it's the first day of the conference is you're at the BART station by the conference. And we sat and went, yep, we, we want to drive registration. But what we also want is our employees to be so flipping excited mm-hmm. that yep. this is happening. Yep. So what we're going to do we're going to do the takeover at the BART station that's right in front of our office. Oh, that's great. Like, we know what our goal is, but we know what our secondary goal is. Is every employee is like, oh my gosh, I'm, oh my gosh. Yeah. You know what? That's that is really such cool. a great point. And we just invested in a, a pretty senior person attainable to run internal communications. And he's fantastic. Nick, this is a shout out to you. But it changes everything because mm-hmm. if you can have, if you can harness the power of your in, your entire employee base to be advocates it it's on social media like it's not just it's not just us you know tweeting out from our handle it's every employee posting and then the the reach of that it's yeah. the multiplier effect of all it's that totally. it's getting them excited they're out telling their friends who's telling somebody else like we can't even measure the impact of that completely yeah. but it's so important no no I, jj you spot on every great brand is built inside out yes right yes. and not outside in which is you got to start with the empl- happy employees make happy customers and passionate employees will eventually lead to passionate customers. That's right? great. And happy cows come from California. And happy cows make happy cheese. <laughs> happy cows make happy cheese. We talk, real, real so, California oh my goodness. Cheese. So we did an entire episode, it probably hasn't aired yet, on just cheese <laughs> with Francisco Leone, I believe, I think that's his last name, or Francesco. And he used to work for this company overseas that creates cheese like all these specialty cheeses and i no joke did 40 minutes on cheese i was like this is so it's a fascinating market it's like anyways um it was the market doesn't melt away right (laughs) Right? uh i don't know it's probably we're like we're like 25 episodes deep right now in our catalog so it's i don't know probably in like three months it was so fat oh my goodness and it's like uh it's like a multi-sided marketplace and like shelf space matters. It's like all these things that you don't think about like technology companies ever having to worry about. And you're like, you know, packaging and what you can control as a CMO, like you can control the packaging, but you can't control like any of the other parts of the ecosystem. And so one of the big uh, insights that he had was, this is the classic, classic example of be where your competitors aren't. He got one of their cheeses, which was like burger blue cheese. They wanted to position around like blue cheese being for burgers. 
and he got it in the meat section oh, next yeah. to the burger. Oh, that's brilliant. And so there was the only smart. cheese in the meat section, and he was like, it sold like off the shelf. That's, that's amazing. Yeah. That, that's that very smart. Brilliant. Yeah, it was, uh, man, it was great. I'm, I'm like 40 minutes talking about cheese. I was like, I could have done three hours on just cheese. <laughs> um, okay, next quote. You could either be the person people come to when they want to understand lead flow, or you could... No, should be the quote. I just oh. have my hand up. Uh, when they want to understand lead flow, or you could be the person that people come to when they want to make sure the product strategy is in line with the vision of the industry. And your comment... <laughs> I got my hand up. Okay. JJ. Yeah. I was going to say, oh, it is me? Oh, yeah. I don't remember. I was like, that wasn't me. I don't remember. It was that. you. It would not, um, okay, yes, it makes okay, sense let me now. Repeat now the repeat the quote. Repeat yeah. the quote. Uh, you could either be the person that people come to when they want to understand lead flow, or you could be the person that people want to come to when they want to make sure the product strategy is in line with the vision for your industry and you're the one commentating on the market, not the marketing. Yes. Okay. So I believe the evolution of a, a CMO is it goes back to the M, right? Yeah. Marketing, which is important, the function and operations of marketing. But when you can become the chief market officer and when you go into a board meeting and you're commentating on and this shift has happened to me personally in the last two years. And, and as I love it, I'm no longer giving marketing operational updates. I'm giving market updates. I love that. Mm -hmm. Your whole the whole conversation changes and how they view you changes and your value it, the whole thing. It's just it it's the evolution of every marketer should 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 aspire to become the chief market officer. Good I call. There's my PSA for the day. It's great. Okay, we drop the mic. Get out. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think we have two more. Um, I promise to only go on one more tangent. Make sure that you have a good, transparent relationship with your CEO that is built on trust. It was JJ. Is it again? I yeah, like, I was going to say that just sounds. I like was me. like, did I say? I don't know. If I don't know. <laughs> oh, it's good. It's true. It is very true. But everybody, all the C-suite, I would say, you know. Yeah. It's a great Jack Wells thing about trust and transparency, right? Only when you get trust, you get the truth. Yep. If you don't get trust, you don't get truth. If you don't have the truth, you don't get trust. And he talks about this two-dimensional two aspect of it. Can I actually ask a question to go back to the first 90 days? Because I would love to know how both of you, when you went in the first 90 days in your role, how did you go build those relationships across the executive and leadership team? It's a good question. Lauren, why don't you go first? Um, part of it is I'm super chatty. So that <laughs> <helps>. <laughs> that's gonna we're definitely pulling that quote that's great <laughs> crap um but a lot of it was and it it seems so sort of simple and trite but how do i sit down and how do i build as many connections with people as possible whether it is sitting down with the ceo and i always try to make which will initially drive some personality types a little batty the first time then they fall then they learn to love me is the I want my first conversation not to be about work. And when I first meet the rest of the leadership team or spend time with the CEO, we can dive right into work. And then our conversations are very transactional. How do I build a deeper relationship and deeper trust? How do I get to know people on uh, who are you? What do you care about? What drives you and fuels you? And get that piece first so I can understand what are their motivations? What's their perspective? And if I can get that, then to your point of, trust will lead to the truth. If I can get to know you as a person and you can get to know me as a person and we can find some common ground, then you'll really tell me what you think and you will really tell me what is happening in marketing, what is happening in your function, and you will be more emotionally inclined to figure out how we can partner on a deeper level. And then how do I sort of keep building that? 
and I will focus a lot on the the people piece in the beginning. That's great. Yeah, that's great. I, it's, it's human first, right? That mm-hmm. is the first approach in terms of trying to connect with them as humans. The other one, the only thing I'd add to it is contextual communication is that you, you made that point, JJ, earlier also is if you can align what you're trying to do to what's important to them, mm-hmm. yes. then it's an easier way to bridge that relationship and, and that connection, right? Mm-hmm. For example, the CFO is about shareholder value. The first thing taught for the great CFO we have, the first thing that matters to him is are we maximizing shareholder value? Mm-hmm. And if my conversation is around how can marketing be an enabler for that, it's a great thing from a head of sales. And sales is more is more interesting than because sales and marketing has to align, right? And be swift from the same boat. And what's important to them, for example, I don't talk about leads or in the first 90 days, any of that stuff. Like how do we drive pipeline on revenue and how do we do this together? Yeah. Right. And talk to product management, for example, like how do you come together, like, you know, product strategy and product marketing and how do you bring these things together to ultimately make sure that we're winning in the marketplace together, right? Mm -hmm. So what matters to them for their success, if you can align your contextual communication on Mm -hmm. that and then say, how can your initiatives be aligned to that and vice versa? I think it's it's a step forward, but it all starts with human relationship first. Yeah. One more quote, and then I want to talk about the mistakes that you all made in the first 90 days. So final quote, you use thought leadership to earn the right to engage. That's you. That's right. That was yeah. me. Of course. That was me. I believe I, that. I sincerely believe yeah. that. I love that. It's a, it's such a good quote. Um, yeah, that's it for our quote guest game. What was it? Lightning quote guest game? Um, for the last 25 minutes. <laughs> thank, <laughs> thank you all. It was so lightning-y. Uh, Put thank a you bunch all of markers playing. in yeah, the room. Yeah, I was going to say, I was just going to say, not, there's no lightning. In. <laughs> especially as I'm like, well, so I'm chatting. <laughs> yeah. Okay, let's talk mistakes. What were those things that you wish you had taken back? And it doesn't necessarily have to be from the first 90 days or things that you can protect the innocent if you want to use some colleagues that you know that have made some some silly mistakes. Uh, in their first uh, 90 days or so of being CMO? I will do my one thing that I look back on a lot of the first time I took over running a marketing department. And the thing I will always go, I wish I would have known then. I didn't know it was okay not to know the answer. And my first head of marketing role, it was this big step up. I was really excited. I I thought I had to be this person who knew everything and all of the answers. And I didn't know to ask for help. I didn't know it was okay not to know the answer. And I took on so much for myself. And now that I've done this enough times, it's if I don't know something, here's the people that I can go to for help. And it's okay to sit in a room and someone says, well, you know, based on what you're saying, how would you redo packaging for our our entire product line? And my answer is, you know what? I don't actually know that answer. I know this is something we need to look into and we need to figure this out, but it's okay not to know the answer. And I didn't know that my first time. I, I'll, I'll add to that. Um, it's something that I learned in the military that one of my battalion commanders taught me. It's like, even if you think you have all the answers, just say, Roger, I'll look into it. That's it. Just like say, I'll look into it. Because when you're the person who always responds with the answer every single time, it shows that you're not going to be the one who's like introspective and going to go look at that stuff. And it just kind of sounds like you're a know-it-all. And uh, it was one of those lessons where it was like, sometimes I want to tell you to go look into something and I don't want to hear the answer in the meeting of why we can't do something or whatever it is. Like, just go do some research, come back to me later on and, and it'll be a much easier you know, situation to deal with. 
Yeah, I would say there's a number of things. I, you, have, you, have, you have, how much time do you have? So <laughs> there's a lot of things. But I think one of the challenges that when you get into a CMO role or even you know head of marketing in a function is that you're trying to get off the right way and impress in the first mm-hmm. 90 days. All of us, human nature, right? And that can be viewed as I'm going to do a lot of things. I'm going to take responsibility for a bunch of initiatives and go drive it. And sometimes good is the evil of great. And if you're trying to do many things good, uh, it's not as good as three things great. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you would much rather scope down and say, what can I have real measurable incremental impact in the organization and go drive those, what I call plays, right? I believe in the concept of plays, right? You have this combative framework. It's plays, drives programs, drives performance, right? So if you can scope down those plays and drive, okay, what are the three plays I'm going to drive rather than trying to go a mile wide and an inch deep? because you want to impress. Um, I think that's one lesson I've learned. I would, I would say, let me scope down the last two jobs. Let's scope down and do those things great early on and then scale up. I, yeah. I think scope just, down to scale up. That's I think it's say. the same way with case studies too. I think we get so obsessed with like, I need 50 case studies for every single micro vertical. Yeah. And it's like, if you just went a mile deep on one of those case studies of like every single buyer in the whole chain, how they actually felt, how they like, how their careers changed. Like uh, if you went, if you just kept going deeper and deeper and deeper, you'd probably find much more relevant insights to buying behaviors than if you're just like, oh, here's like, Industry X for this thing. Yeah. It's like that's I mean, not sales, even. Sales, you know this, right? All of us know this. With all respect to sales, each salesperson can probably remember three to four case studies mm-hmm. at any given time to tell the story, right? So you need the checkbox from a reference perspective, I get, but it's really, you know, again, scoping down to scale up would be the, the right thing from content perspective, from a program perspective, from a place perspective across the board, right? And I would say that I have, I have you know, failure is a feature, not a bug. So <laughs> I definitely yeah. uh, learned from that. Yeah, I, I agree. What you don't do is is more important many times than what you do. Correct. 100%. Yeah. I, have, I have made this mistake in my career in the past, and it's something that I did not repeat when I went to Tenable, but I think this goes back to people. Uh, when you are looking at building, rebuilding, bringing on talent into your team, what I always think of it, what I always recommend is, is take a top-down approach when you can. Look at where you need to have A players at a senior level and or where you have deficiencies where you might have to upgrade your talent and get the most senior people, experienced people, people who've been there, done that, that you can, instead of trying to maybe take, some people take like a bottom-up approach to building their orgs. I always say, get the get the the A players in the pole positions as your lieutenant. So as a CMO, they might be your VP core, right? And then they are people who should be able to build out their teams and then give them give them the room to be able to scale out their teams and make the people decisions. But if you get the right people in, I am a big fan of Lyft, right? Because everyone who's who hasn't had have, have Lyft has experienced this. If you don't hire the right people underneath you, you wind up getting dragged down mm-hmm. because you don't have the people that are going to be able to run the place, right? To give you the lift to do what you do best and what you're great at and why they hired you. And it, everybody fails. So when you don't have the right people underneath you, you get dragged down. And when you get dragged down, you're not meeting the expectations of why the CEO and the board hired you, mm-hmm. right? And so always find the the most senior, experienced, awesome A players you can and get them on board and just give them the space to do great work. What level do you stop interviewing folks on your team? Is there like a certain positional level or? You know, I mean, I've worked in organizations where every single, the CEO interviewed 
every single person. There's a lot of great technology yeah. companies where the founders say we hire, we interview every person and that's why we have this great culture and all that. Like if that's great for the, your organization, great. For me, I hire great people. And you know, if they want me, so what I say is, look, I'm gonna trust that they know how to go build a team. And I tell them, these are the values, and these are the things we're looking for. And if they need me to close, then I'm a closer. I'll get them excited and, and like, get, like get them ready to sign on the dotted line if we want them. But I'm not there to assess the talent. That's yeah. why I hired them. And look, sometimes you're gonna, you know, sometimes you're gonna hire well and sometimes you're gonna mishire. We've all mishired. It happens from time to time. I've done it too. It's just a matter of you have to learn from your mistake and you can't make the same mistake twice in the same role. Yep. That's, that's the key. As a CMO, there are some folks who want, you know, approval on any written word that goes out about the company. There's others that, you know, are going to let everyone on their team manage all that sort of stuff. What do you think are best practices from from CMOs out there in terms of how they manage the approval process on whether it's external comms or marketing assets or large campaigns? Like, what do you retain as like the the signature approval authority on? Yeah, I'll, I'll start with that one. I mean, so first of all, any CMO that says I have to approve every piece of content generated is not going to be a CMO very long because you just can't. No. <laughs> there's not there's you just can't scale. So I think if you create if you create the framework and the the brand guidelines and what's acceptable and what's not, and you give people a framework in which to work in and and trust that they can like color in the line, so to speak, then create once you know write once and create many. Right. The one piece of content that will never leave without me not only seeing it, but probably having a say in it are press releases. And and that is one, because as a public company, it becomes a legal document. Mm-hmm. Um, number two is they're very strategically important pieces of content. I think that some organizations say, oh, it's just a press release. But look, it, it has probably more reach than any type of content that you're going to create. It has reach not just to your customers, but to your potential investors. And as a public company, your stakeholders become much more, right? Not It's not just your customers and partners anymore. And I believe that's like good strategic PR is a chess, it's a chess match, right? Mm-hmm. And you can you can use press releases. What is the thing that competitors go to? They're public documents. Everyone will go to that. And I always use press releases as a way to deposition competition. And sorry, I'm giving a little bit of my playbook away, but but <laughs> but press releases to me are strategically important. Yeah, it's a good question. I would say three things, right? One is, you know, obviously I would look at it from the lens of brand and positioning, right? If you look at it from those two, there's a Venn diagram there of things that between those two. Press release is, you know, a legally binding, a legal document. I always look at it. In fact, my CEO looks at it too. So it's very important for us as a public company and a fast growth public company. The second I would say is any big brand campaign that's going on. Mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. for example, if you're doing a TV to TV ad with the CNBC, we did an ad with the Wall Street Journal, or we're doing something at, you know, the Austin airport, I got to be on it because yeah. you know, I wanted to look at it to make sure that we're representing a brand the right way. In fact, I'm involved in a little bit in the early parts and then the, in the end, and they had the team kind of drive the crux of it, right? I would say two. Three is any large analyst relations report mm-hmm. that we are being part yes, of. Yes, absolutely. Right? I want to make sure I influence it as a CMO and, and, and make sure that you're telling the story strategically the right way. That's a great point. And those are things that I'm, you know, I want to, nothing goes out without me having, you know, look in either one of those three buckets. Is it yep. ever by just like pure dollar amounts? You know, like some companies have like, hey, VPs can approve this, directors can approve this. Like, it's a great amount. product to use for approving. Fan, I know the product. I should tell you about that. It's called Cooper. But we're talking about <laughs> <last laughs> questions. So. Hey, now. 
No, but seriously, I, I think it's less by dollar amount, it's more by impact. I agree. That, right, it's really the impact, of, it's the, because marketing a lot of times is, marketing is one to many, sales is one to one, right? Mm-hmm. The impact of any small thing you can do is to your point, JJ, you said, it's it's you know thousands, hundreds of thousands, potentially even millions, right? Depending on what brand you're with. So that's why external brand and strategic positioning, those two things are very important in terms of how you look at I it. I totally agree. Yeah. And yeah. I'm going to say this and say that I'm the one who came up with this format is, um, it goes back to impact and what are we what are we producing and how many how many potential prospects customers are going to see this or are going to be impacted by this and for your example with press releases the potential impact of a press release is massive the impact of i'm going to come up with new individual emails for the sdrs you know what i probably don't need to see that mm-hmm. if i have hired well if i've built the right teams and orgs other people can deal with that if it's a press release, if it's a large brand campaign, if we're redoing pricing for the company, this has a large strategic impact on the business. I just need to pay attention and be aware of it. And my one additional caveat is um, there's all of those things that are logical, high impact, high customer touch, high business impact. And then it's what I refer to as CEO hot buttons. And every CEO will care about Something that is weird and like unex- swag, like swag. I was at a company years ago where the CEO had to approve all T-shirts. Yes. And I was sitting there going, seriously, I wasn't even going to look at the T-shirts. Oh, you have to approve T-shirts. This now means I have to see the T-shirts and approve them before you see them, because if you see something, I'm going to get. I'm going to get crap for this. So you think there's like some secret CEO manual where they're like, you must look at all yeah. swag. I swear every CEO cares about swag, like ridiculously a lot. Like, I mean, it's really, it's crazy. It's, it's true. Chief swag officer. Yeah, right. right? right. Totally. It, uh, it, because it, they care about the brand and yeah. it's so important for they them. They do. Right? And they feel like the swag is the physical representation. And I get that and I respect it. Yes. But there's CEO hot buttons. Yes. All right. All three of you are brilliant marketers and we sincerely thank you for uh, stopping by the studio today and hanging out we will link up all of uh, all of your stuff in uh, in the show notes highly recommend our, our listeners check out Tenable check out Koopa check out Lauren <laughs> um, but thanks so much for hanging out thanks it was a blast it was thanks. a blast guys it's awesome. Lauren it's a pleasure thanks yeah. again thank Cheers. you guys yeah. thanks Bye. everybody Thanks for listening to this episode of Marketing Trends. Marketing Trends is brought to you by Salesforce Pardot. World-class B2B marketers use Pardot to generate and nurture leads, close more deals, and maximize ROI at every stage of the sales cycle. Empower your marketing team to become revenue-generating superheroes and let Pardot's data analysis keep an eye on the bottom line. Learn more by visiting pardot.com podcast or click on the link in our show notes. You have eight seconds to make a connection or risk a click away onto the next topic. The difference lies in your ability to deliver relevant experiences to your audience across devices and across channels. But delivering on a really great experience is impossible without the right people and the right technology. You've got the right people, but your technology choices will make or break someone's experience with your brand. At the center of gravity of your digital experience 
Brightspot Content Management System can deliver relevant content, personalized experiences, and cross-channel synergies to create unforgettable brand experiences. So you can be a bright spot in someone's day. Head over to brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends to find out right now. From global crisis to hunger relief efforts, the messages you deliver save lives, inform important decision-making, and help keep communities safe and sound. The speed and scale of your content needs to be delivered faster and on a much larger scale. Brightspot Content Management System has supported some of the world's largest brands to communicate on a global scale. From Johnson & Johnson sharing critical information with their customers to helping Whole Foods tell their brand story to a global audience. Brightspot is designed to handle rapid iteration and personalized messages to those you care about most. Learn more at brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends.